The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Let's take our Bibles and open up to the book of Daniel. I know you thought I wasn't going to get here, but here I am. (laughs) So uh, grateful to be back in in Daniel uh, today, and it's a tremendous joy uh, and excitement to open up uh, the Word of of God uh, with you. And uh, we'll have to reintroduce ourselves to the book of of Daniel. And uh, for those of you who might be joining us um, more recently, or for the rest of us who just need a refresher, Uh, Let me remind you of what the book of Daniel is all about. The overarching theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God or the unopposed rule of God over the realm of mankind. And a key verse uh, for that theme could be found in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17, where the holy angels declare that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. And that means that it doesn't matter how high or exalted a ruler of the earth might become, he is always beneath the most high God. Ten times in the book of of Daniel, God is referred to as the most high God. Uh, He has a superlative greatness, uh, and no one can ascend to his level. Uh, There is none higher than the most high. And that truth that God is the most high is also reinforced by his title, King of Heaven, which is another way of saying that it doesn't matter how high the kingdoms of the earth become, they will always find themselves beneath heaven. He is the King of Heaven. He's the Lord of Lords. And God makes this point explicitly clear to Nebuchadnezzar over in chapter 4 and verse 26, where Nebuchadnezzar was told that he would be chopped down to a mere stump of a man until he recognized that it is heaven that rules. God is the most High God, the King of heaven, the Lord of lords, he rules over all. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. And that overarching theme of God's sovereignty over all will be important to keep in mind as we work our way through Daniel chapter 8. Because Daniel chapter 8 introduces us to three figures who on the surface appear to be completely out of control. The kings and kingdoms that show up in Daniel chapter 8 are described as these uncontrollable raging beasts who do as they please, they magnify themselves, and no one is able to rescue from their hands. The first beast in Daniel chapter 8 is described as a ram, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 4. It says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. The second beast is described as a goat in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 8. It says, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. And verse 7 says, there was none to rescue from his power. And then down in verse 11 of chapter 8, we're introduced to the third figure who is simply described as the horn. And in verse 11, it says that it, referring to this horn, 
magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. And in verse 12, it says that it will perform its will. And I hope that you're starting to see the tension. Hope you're starting to see the tension. Because all of these beasts described as these rulers of the world, these kingdoms, it's said that they're doing what they please. They're doing all that's in their heart. They're magnifying themselves. There's nobody to stop them. But yet at the same time, we're told that our God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. And he is the one who Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35 says, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So, so why does it seem that these beasts are doing whatever's in their heart, doing all that they please, and they seem to be getting away with murder? And maybe you found yourself there before, where evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, and it seems like they do as they please, that there's nobody to stop them, there's nothing that you can do to stand in their way. Maybe you've been slandered among friends or family. Maybe even publicly you've been slandered. I know of a ministry enduring that even now. And those who are doing it, it seems like they can't be stopped. They do as they please, and anything you say in your defense is simply more ammunition against you. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been the target of slander? When David was on the run from Saul, he considered part of the persecution that he endured, the vicious attacks against his character. And he described his experiences as lying among the beasts and weapons of war. Psalm 57 verse 4 says, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Maybe you've been there. Maybe there's a situation on your job where someone just took the credit for what you've done, or maybe even worse, you took the blame for what they've done, (laughs) and there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe you're even being attacked in some way on your job because of your faith, because of your unwillingness to compromise with the world, and now you're becoming the center of attack. Maybe that's you, and it's like there's nothing that anybody can do to stop it. Where, where can I get some help, some relief around here? Maybe you've been the victim of some other kind of injustice. Maybe there's, there's some kind of legal injustice where something's been done and it's just wrong. And you're, you're wondering, is, is there anybody that's going to come to my aid? Anybody that's going to come to my defense? You know, maybe you feel like the, the widow in the, in the gospel that's just pleading for somebody's justice. Would you grant justice, Lord? Or maybe you're just looking at the way that things are in our nation so rapidly declining, and you're wondering, when are we going to reach the bottom of all this? Is, is there ever going to be a stop? You know, maybe you've experienced these beasts of the earth, and you're wondering, is there, is there any hope? Is there any relief? It seems like they're doing what they want to do, and they're getting away with it. There's absolutely nothing I can do. I, I feel like my, my hands are tied as I'm just sitting here watching it. And I believe that Daniel 8 has a word for all of us who've been tempted to think that the world is just spinning out of control without any stop. It's like that old saying, you know, around and around and around it goes, where it stops, nobody knows. But there is somebody who does know. (laughs) And he's, he's in absolute control of everything. 
down to the most minute detail. He's sovereign over evil men, evil kingdoms who do as they please. And we'll see that clearly in this text in Daniel chapter 8. This is divine reassurance for distressed souls because God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. Look at Daniel chapter 8. We'll read down through verse 12. Daniel chapter 8, starting at verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. With the longer one coming up last, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, today as we always do, asking for your help, Lord. We need your help, Lord, as we look into your word. Father, we recognize that you are the author of this word, and Father, if we desire to have a correct understanding of it that we need to come to the God who wrote it. So, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. And, uh, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot to to cover here, but um, before we actually jump into the text, it's important that I set a little bit of context for you. So, first of all, Uh, Let's talk about the writing, the writing of chapter 8. That's point number one, the writing. If you remember our introduction to the book of Daniel, we mentioned that one of the unique features of the book of Daniel was that some portions of the book are written in Aramaic and other portions of the book are written in Hebrew. And from chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 2, verse 4, that's in Hebrew, But then after the words in chapter 2 and verse 4, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. The Aramaic section begins in Daniel. Uh, And that goes from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7. Aramaic was the trade language of that day or the the language of business during this day. 
uh, much like English would be in, in our day. It was the, the language that was uh, spoken the most in the ancient Near Eastern world. And between cultures, that's the, the language that they would speak. When they didn't know how to speak other languages, they would speak Aramaic language. And one author notes that although the language of culture and scholarship in Babylon was Akkadian, Aramaic was the dominant commercial language of the empire because of its comparatively simple alphabetic script. And uh, if you've ever studied uh, Hebrew or Aramaic, I'm not sure if you'd agree with that, but it's a simple alphabetic script compared to the other languages. So if you wanted the most people to understand what you were writing, whether you were Jew or Gentile, during this day, you would write in Aramaic. And that's what Daniel chapters 2 verse 4 through the end of chapter 7 were written, and it was written in the Aramaic, because Daniel wanted all people to know the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream about who saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the furnace, who put the handwriting on the wall, who saved Daniel from the mouth of the lions. All of that was in Aramaic in the commercial language, as well as the prophecy of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. But when Daniel switches to, to give a message directly to the Hebrew people. This is, this is for you. This is personally for you. He'd switch to their native tongue. He switched to, to Hebrew. And that's what Daniel does in chapter 8. This message was specifically for the Jewish people. And beginning in chapter 8, Daniel switches back over to the Hebrew language. And that's significant because this was a particular message for them. That's the writing. The writing. How about the timing? The timing. That's point number two. Look at verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Uh, this is the, the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. This would have been 551 B.C., 11 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, and 12 years before the Medo-Persian Empire took over Babylon. And Daniel receives his vision right in the middle of these two kings or kingdoms, right in between Nebuchadnezzar and the Medo-Persian Empire, right in the middle. And that's important to point out because he's writing during a time when nobody really knows what's going to happen. He's right in the middle of it. The year 551, the Babylonian Empire was, still had a stranglehold on the known world. Uh, there were signs that Babylon was beginning to, to fracture during this time. First of all, uh, Nabonidus, the, the chief ruler and king of Babylon, uh, from 556 until the fall of 539, he was just absent from the capital of his kingdom. And he entrusted uh, the kingdom to his eldest son, Belshazzar. That's why we find Belshazzar in uh, chapter uh, 5. That's his eldest son. Uh, but Nabonidus, the true ruler, the, the, the chief ruler, is, is out and about. He's on his campaigns. And uh, he also made his primary residence a place called Tema, which was about 450 miles uh, to the southeast of Babylon in the Arabian Desert. And uh, you wonder, why was he in this Arabian Desert? It was because Tema was the center of worship for a moon god called Sin, which is a fitting name for the moon god, Sin. It's Sin to, to worship this god. And he made this place his primary residence. And secondly, beyond the absence of the king, outside of Babylon, there were several threats to the empire. Uh, Nabonidus engaged in conflicts with Syria, with uh, Cilicia, uh, to the north, uh, Arabia. But there were other nations that were growing during this time in power. And nobody knew where the greatest threat was going to come from during this time. You know, would it be coming from the south? Would it be coming from Egypt? You know, would it be coming from, you know, the, the east? You know, Lydia, later known as Asia Minor, would it be coming from there? 
you know, would it be coming from the, the Medes, the, the Media Kingdom, uh, the Armenia to the north? I mean, those were the major world powers. And nobody knew where's going to be the, the major threat. Where's, the, where's the, the, the real place where we have to focus on? There's no possible way to predict how the future would unfold. But that's exactly what Daniel does. He unfolds the future for us. And there was no possible way for Daniel to know this. And this is the reason why so many liberal scholars argue for a late date for the writing of Daniel. Because it couldn't possibly be writing history before it happens. It's too accurate. And Daniel nails it. Prediction after prediction, he nails it. And they argue that Daniel has to be written after the fact. He's, he's writing looking back. So they say it's not even really Daniel. It's somebody who's pseudo-Daniel. He just takes Daniel's name somewhere in the future and then just kind of projects himself back as if he was writing before these events really took place. One conservative scholar writes that the great majority of critics regard this book as entirely spurious and composed centuries after the death of the 6th century Daniel. They understand it to be a work of historical fiction composed about 167 B.C. uh, intended to uh, encourage a resistance movement among the Jewish people. But there's no need to invent those kinds of theories if you just believe in a God who controls history, right? Why don't you uh, flip over to Isaiah 46, Isaiah chapter 46. Because this is, is one of the evidences that God gives for his own divinity, his own deity. Isaiah 46, take a look at verse 8. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 8. It says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And how do we know that there's nobody like you, God? How do we know that you're God alone? Look at verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God God declares the end of history at the beginning of it. And before the events come to pass, he predicts what those events will be. And he tells transgressors to call this to mind. Why don't you remember this, that I'm the God who ordains history. And if you want to apply for the position of God, you've got a lot of catching up to do. (laughs) You've got a lot of explaining to do. Look over at uh, Isaiah chapter 41, just to show you a couple of these other passages. Isaiah 41 Look at verse 22. Actually, I'll start at verse 21. Isaiah 41, starting at verse 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I, I just love when the Lord like brags on himself. Like, you know, nobody else can do what I do. Just, just come and bring it if you can, right? Look at chapter 44. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. 
Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. And then look at chapter 45. Chapter 45, look at verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared, is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's nobody like God. And God continues to defend his own deity even through what he predicts about the future. There's nobody else that can do what he can do. So the timing of this vision is Significant. He receives this vision in the middle of a time when nobody knows what's going to happen. Twelve years before the Medo-Persian Empire takes over, and over 200 years from the time that the Greek Empire takes over. Only God is able to write history before it happens with such accuracy. And Daniel is somewhat in a state of shock as he receives this vision. Look again back in uh, Daniel chapter 8, look at verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously, you know, as if he had to remind us of who he was. It's just like to to me, like Daniel, like it's me. I'm the one that received this vision as if to say, I I can't believe that I've had the privilege of receiving this. It's very similar to how the apostle John responded in the book of uh, Revelation when he received the vision of the end times in Revelation 22. He says, I, John, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. I mean, can you believe it? It's me. John saw these things. Like, can you believe it? And Daniel's the same way. Who am I to receive such revelation from God? It's incredible to receive this from the mouth of the Lord. And the setting is also significant. So we've got the, uh, the writing, we've got the, the timing, and we've got the setting. Look at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 8. He says, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I, I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. In Daniel's uh, vision, he saw himself at the citadel or a fortress of Susa in the province of Elam. And why was this detail so significant to mention? That he's in Susa, he's by this canal. Why, why is this important to mention? It's because the city of Susa would have a future role in the Persian Empire. Even though at the time of Daniel's vision, Susa was only recognized as a city of the past. It, it had past significance. There was no like present significance to that city of Susa. It was only about the past. And, and Daniel says, I've seen myself here in the future. So, so Susa was a city, again, it's located outside of Babylon, some 230 miles uh, east of, of Babylon, 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf. It was a city that had its glory in the past days. At one time, Susa was able uh, to to boast that it was a capital of the nation of Elam. Uh, It was uh, also at this location that the the famous code of of Hammurabi, if you're familiar with that, was found. But during Daniel's day, it was not a city of great significance or great power. So, So why here? Because I'm going to prove to you what's going to happen in the future. And it was reduced to a status of like just a mere province. It's But Daniel sees the vision here because the city of the past 
would become the city of the future. Susa would later come underneath Persian control. They would make it their capital city, a royal city, and a beautiful Persian palace would be constructed in the same location. The very same place where Daniel saw this vision is the very same place that a palace would be erected, and it's the very same palace that Queen Esther would later reside when she would say, if I perish, I perish, and she enters into the presence of the king to plead for her life and the life of her people. It all happened right here in Susa. It would have its day again. And again, Daniel is placed here in the vision because God is indicating to him, this is what's going to happen in the future. I'm a God who knows the future. And even the, the canal that he's beside, it's not just a, a normal word for it's. it's uh, in some translations, it's translated as river. It's better translated as a canal because it was uh, a canal that connected two rivers together. And this is the only place in all of Scripture that this word for canal shows up. Like God was so specific, it's here and nowhere else. And again, you can understand why, why Daniel's shocked. Like, like this happened to me, like me. I was looking in the citadel. I, I was there. I myself, me myself, I was really there. Can you believe it? He was shocked. And again, we have this, this, this setting is even important in the vision. And then we move from the setting to verses 3 to, to 14 to the substance of the vision. And I call this the magnifying, the magnifying. And why do I call it that? It's because when we look at the substance of the vision, these rulers are those who magnified themselves. They, they made themselves out to be great. And it's mentioned in every single section of this vision. In chapter uh, 8 and verse 4, he pleased and magnified himself, speaking about this ram. In verse 8, then the male goat magnified himself. Verse 11, it, speaking about the horn, magnified itself comes from the, the Hebrew word gadal. It's a, it's a word that could be translated to become great, to advance, to enlarge, to become rich, to become wealthy, to increase, to promote, to grow long, to exalt, or as it's translated here, to magnify. Back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, we're told that God would make Abraham's name great. But these rulers said, I'm going to make my name great. I'm going to exalt myself. I'm going to magnify myself. And here we see these kings seeking to make a great name for themselves, the magnifying. And the first to magnify himself is this one called the ram. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. It says, Then I lifted my eyes and looked. Behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. And no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. The first to, to magnify himself here is the ram. And the ram had two horns, which wouldn't be strange. Uh, but what is strange is that the two horns are lopsided. One is longer than the other. It's a lopsided ram. One side's bigger than the other. And we've seen this kind of picture before where one side of an animal was bigger than the other. Back in chapter 7 and verse 5, there was a lopsided bear with one side higher than the other. You remember that? And both pointed to the same empire, the Medo-Persian empire, which is exactly how the vision is interpreted. If you look down in verse 20, it says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So th there's no confusion about who we're talking about here. 
the, the vision is talking about the Medo-Persian Empire. And the, the history around this is, is fascinating uh, because nobody was anticipating that the Persians would be the next superpower. Before Cyrus came to power in uh, 550 B.C., Persia was only a small country of less than 50,000 square miles, which would be about the size of Alabama. And Media was the greater power of the two between Media and Persia. Media was actually the greater power. So, so, so here you have this, this small country, like I said, about the size of Alabama, that becomes the superpower of the world. Somewhere between 559 and 550 BC, Cyprus, the leader of Persia, engaged in a series of successful battles against Media, his neighbor, and he gained control over the Median Empire and made them subject to the Persians. And it was the combined forces of the Medes and the Persians that began to establish the largest empire that the world had up until this point. And if I had a PowerPoint, I'd go ahead and show you what it looked like, but I'll do that maybe next week. It was the combined forces of the Medes and the Persians that began to establish the largest empire. Look down at verse 4. It says, I saw the ram budding westward, which would be toward Babylon, northward, which would have been toward Lydia or Asia Minor, as it was known later on, and southward, which would have been toward Egypt. And it was already coming from the east, so it didn't have to mention the east. Uh, So all of these were the major enemies of the Medo-Persian Empire, and it was an incredible victory that they had over these different nations. Back in chapter 7 and verse 5, if you want to look back there again, it speaks about the same empire in verse 5. And it says, And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. That's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire going westward, northward, and southward. The three ribs in the mouth of the bear. And they had victory. And nobody could stand in the way of this army. In verse 4 it says, No other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. And during this time, the children of Israel could have been easily discouraged by this new superpower. I mean, if if Babylon was a lot to deal with, if they were overwhelming to deal with, what about the nation that overwhelms Babylon? I mean, they're even worse than Babylon. If they can take over Babylon, like, where does that leave us? What are we going to do with this ruler who is magnifying himself? He does all that his heart desires, and there's nobody to stand in his way. And where is God in all this? How is God going to fulfill his word? How is he going to offer us protection from somebody who does whatever they want to do? Why don't you flip over to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. How, How is God going to protect his people during this time when you have a ruler that's doing whatever is in his heart to do, doing all that's in his heart to do? Just kind of let loose. What's going to happen during this time? Isaiah 44, and if you remember, Isaiah was written somewhere between 739 and 686 B.C. This would have been somewhere between 188 to 135 years before Daniel's prophecy and between 200 and 147 years before Cyrus conquered Babylon. So keep that in mind. This, we're talking about a long time before these events take place. 
But look at what happens in uh, Isaiah 44. And again, remember, this is up to 200 years before it happened. Look at the word of Lord of the Lord in chapter 44, verse 26. Actually, I'll start at verse 24. <laughs> Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I'm the Lord. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up. And I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. I don't know if you grasp how significant that is, how astounding that is, that 200 years before the events happened, that God named Cyrus by name. And this same ruler who is said to do all that's in his heart, he's boasting He's magnifying himself. He's going this way, that way. Nobody can stand in my way. I'm doing all that I want to do. And then God turns around and says, you're doing all that I want you to do. (laughs) You're doing all that I want you to do. And I'm going to call you by name 200 years before the fact so that you know who's in charge. This is the same one who's magnifying himself. But he's simply performing what the Lord would desire. And this is where you have to understand that there's this overarching theme in prophecy. That the kingdoms of the earth can but this way and that way. They can boast in themselves. They can magnify themselves. They can do whatever they please to do. But in the end, they will only serve the greater purposes of the God above them. It's heaven that rules. And Cyrus would only advance the plan of God for his people. Isaiah 45 and verse 1 It says, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings. God is the one who set all of this up. And later on in the book of of Ezra, if you can find it, in the book of of Ezra, we learn that, that Cyrus became the instrument to send the children of Israel back to the promised land. Look at uh, Ezra chapter one and verse one. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I mean, you, you just can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Cyrus, this, this world leader, is saying, like, hey, I'm, I'm going to build, help to, to, to build a house for the Lord. And I'm sending these people back to, to build a house in Jerusalem. God is sovereignly working out his divine plan in human history, even through these men who are doing all that's in their heart to do. 
Do you have that kind of view of the sovereignty of God? Or is the God you serve only sovereign on sunny days? You know, sunny days, chasing the clouds away, right? Is that the only time that you believe in the sovereignty of God? When things are going well? You you need to expand your view of the sovereignty of God to encompass the stormy days as well, right? You can't fall apart when the storms come in life. And as Christians, we face disaster, we face disappointment, we face discouragement, we encounter disease, defamation of character, we suffer death. And you need a view of God that understands that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's not just a Christian slogan, that's Christian life. And even the worst tragedies of life, where it seems like everything is spinning out of control, and it's not just the circumstances, it's people. I mean, I think that's like the harder thing to, to try to deal with, isn't it? It's like if, if, you know, I was just in an accident. It's just like, hey, you know, it's an accident. You know, God's sovereign. You know, when, when you find out that you have some kind of disease, it's like, hey, you know, I, I just got to leave it in the hands of the Lord. But then when it's somebody who's actually doing it to you, who's causing you pain, Lord, it's that one. What are you going to do with him? He's the one that's causing me my suffering. That's when it becomes a little harder to, to say, hey, God is sovereign, right? Because you figure that somehow I'd be able to control what this person is doing. Like somebody somewhere is going to stop him, right? But the Lord is sovereign. And the Lord even uses evil men and evil rulers to eventually accomplish his purpose. And you have to leave that into the hands of the Lord. I can't change them. The greatest miscarriages of justice, we have to trust that into the hand of the Lord. The greatest miscarriage of justice that this world has ever seen is the crucifixion of the Son of God. Will we agree about that? The greatest tragedy imaginable. Why don't you flip over to Acts chapter 4. I'll start at verse 24. It says, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. By the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage? The peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. These rulers are doing whatever's in their heart. They think that they're in charge. But they just fall into the plan of God to do whatever his purpose predestined to occur. The greatest miscarriage of justice accomplished exactly what God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. And we're saved by the lamb who was slain at the hands of wicked men. And that was God's design. It was God's plan. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but God used godless men to put him to death? Like, how does that work? This is the God who's sovereign over all of life, over all of history, over evil men, over all circumstances. The men who were godless put Jesus to death, but God was working out his predetermined plan and foreknowledge all at the same time. And the same is true in your life. With whatever you might be going through right now, even at the hands of wicked men, you can say, you, can say, you know what, Lord, I know that you are still in charge. You're in charge over my boss. You're in charge over the government. You're in charge over this wicked neighbor or whatever else is going on in your life. God, you're in charge of that. And somehow you're using that for my good. I don't know how. And I I wish the good would come (laughs) so that I could be over with it. But Lord, you're somehow using this in my life for my good. And you're doing whatever your hand predestined to occur. This is the God who's sovereign. Like I said, it's not a slogan. It's Christianity. It's Christianity. And there's another beast that follows the ram. It's described as the male goat. Look at verse 5 back in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, look at verse 5. It says, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. And again, there's, there's no need to be confused about who this goat is because uh, the text tells us in chapter 8 and verse 21, it says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the first king was Alexander the Great who's considered to be the greatest military strategist of all time. He is the goat of warfare. And the single horn is a representation of the consolidated power of the one king. You know, rather than this lopsided empire with one horn bigger than the other, this goat only has a single horn, you know, the unicorn goat. Alexander was born in 356 B.C., about 200 years after Daniel made this prediction. He was born to Philip of Macedon, and uh, the city of of Philippi uh, was actually named after Alexander the Great's father, uh, Philip of Macedon. So Philippi and Macedonia uh, actually comes from his father's uh, name. And the Greeks, they held this this long grudge against Persia uh, because of Persia's vicious attacks on Greece, including the attack on Athens, and they held on to that. And Philip of Macedon, it was his desire uh, to, to gather an army, to marshal an army so that they could go and attack Persia. But before he was able to do that, he was assassinated while his son was only 21 years old. And his son became the next king. And the, the, the army unanimously gathered around Alexander the Great to make him the next king, that he would be the king, that he would lead them to victory, that he would be the one who would actually be the start of this Greek empire. So Alexander the Great led an army, one of the greatest achievements in military history we find in his life. He crossed a a short waterway between Europe and Asia by ship, and after he got to the other side, he set the ships on fire so that none of his men would be able to escape, that they knew that they're here for business, 
We're not going anywhere until we're done. So that's how Alexander the Great rolled. You know, he, he burned the ship so they're not going anywhere. And then with only 35,000 to 40,000 troops, he met a Persian army at the, the Granicus River and defeated them even though he was greatly outnumbered. History records this battle between Alexander and the, the Medes and the Persians, uh, which occurred here in 334 B.C. And with only 35 to 40,000 men, Alexander plunged through the river, attacked the, the foot soldiers, which were 100,000 foot soldiers, in addition to 10,000 horsemen, and Scripture records what happened when they met. Look at chapter uh, 8 and verse 6. It says, He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Remember, they've been holding on to a grudge for a while. And they rushed in their mighty wrath. Verse 7, I saw him come beside the ram. He was enraged at him. He struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the Hebrew word for, for wrath in verse 6 actually means, means to be hot. Alexander and his army were raging like a raging fire, infuriated in their wrath. Alexander and his troops were practically fighting on this like unnatural level abnormal strength, white-hot rage against the Persians. And it's reported that Alexander's army killed 20,000 Medo-Persian soldiers and only lost 100. Can, can you imagine that? You only lose 100 men, but she slayed 20,000 men. That's the kind of army that Alexander had. And after defeating Persia, he traveled south to Egypt, receiving submission from all the cities along the way. When he arrived to Egypt, he was seen as a liberator, and then in 331, he faced off with the Persian army again, and the whole empire fell into his lap in rapid succession. Capital cities of Babylon, Susa, Persopolis, all capitulated to Macedonia, and they made quick work of all of his opponents. Move quickly. Described as flying in verse 5. It says, while I was observing in verse 5 of chapter 8, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Moving so fast, it's like he, he hovered over the earth. You know, I was on a, a recent flight, and uh, one of the flight attendants said, you know, we're going to go so fast on this runway that we're actually going to fly. And that's what he did. He went so fast that he flew. It's just, just crossing over the entire earth. It's a, a similar description of the beast back in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6, where it says, this beast was like a leopard with four wings. Like, as if a leopard wasn't quick enough, you know, you add four wings. You know, and that's terrifying. You know, if they, they can't catch you on land, they just fly and, and snatch you, right? And there, there's nothing that Persia could do to withstand him. And by the age of 30, he created one of the largest empires of the ancient world. His army traveled as far as uh, India in 326. And it was only after defeating the Indian prince that his army turned back and said, we've had enough. And he spent his ruling years in this military campaign, one of the most successful military commanders in history, a military genius. And again, the people of God must have felt, this is, this is out of control. <laughs> a power like this is unprecedented. Nobody can stop him. And everywhere he went, he spread Greek culture and the Greek language, which, by the way, happens to be the same language that your New Testament is written in. Is it just a coincidence that Alexander's culture and language spread to all of the known earth and that we find that language, the Koine Greek of our New Testament? Is that a coincidence? Of course not. 
Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and everything was prepared ahead of time. So that even the Greek language now became the vehicle for the gospel to be spread across the earth. God is sovereignly in charge of every detail, every event. And there's one more figure that we'll address, but we'll get to him next week. But we don't have to to worry about whether or not the Lord will take care of those that rise up against him, those that magnify themselves. And the encouraging thing is when we think that the world is just spinning out of control, you know, around and around and around it goes where it stops, God knows. God knows when it stops because God orchestrates the stop. God's in control. And that's so encouraging. And we're just getting started. So much to see in this text, the divine reassurance for distressed souls because God is still on the throne. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to open up your word. Now, Father, I pray that you would remind us of your sovereign control over all things. Now, Father, that when we're tempted to think that the world is spiraling out of control, that evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse, uh, where situations are absolutely beyond what we can do anything to prevent, what we can do anything to stop, we can't change anything. Now, Father, I pray that, that we would recognize that you're a God who's even in control of evil men evil rulers, wicked kingdoms. Father, you're still in control. And Father, you're still going to work out your divine plan. You're bringing people to yourself. And Father, even in the way that the, the Greek language was spread across the, the known world, that was one of the ways that the word of God was spread throughout the known world as well. So Father, we, we are so grateful for your control to know that, that somebody's in charge and that we don't have to be, that we can rest in the everlasting arms of our Savior. Now, Father, I pray that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.